0: Welcome to the Redeemer Church Odessa podcast. We are a gospel-centered, missional family that is rooted in biblical community and discipleship serving Odessa, Texas. Good morning. Uh, My name is Robert. I'm in the McLean group, and I'll be reading uh, from John, John 1, 14 through 18, and I'm using the ESV, we use the ESV here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Robert. Hey, it's good to be with you. My name is Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here. At Redeemer Odessa. Hey, uh, we're three years old this week, and as a birthday present, there's a sign on the building. So uh, look at us go, you guys. Yeah. Uh, hey, if you're a guest, thank you for being here. There are Connect cards on the hospitality table on the way out, or you can scan one of the QR codes. We'd love an opportunity to connect with you, to serve you, and to see how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. And uh, we use the ESV, and if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Gavin will bring you one, or Robert will bring you one. Um, And a couple of housekeeping items, there are some guys on the roof um, doing roofer guy things, and so if you hear it, uh, we're just going to pretend like it's not there. Uh, We're not in the fun dome anymore, okay? So... um, the walls are not coming down. The roof might, but the walls won't. So just, just hang tight, okay? We're going to get through it. I texted them and asked them to move to the east, but we will, we will see what happens. So every now and then I've felt a little, a little rumble, but we're okay. So, all right, to the text. We are at the conclusion of John's prologue. And if you can, for a minute, place yourself in the seats of those reading this for the first time in the first century or perhaps you're reading this for the first time in 2024, so you can relate then to the, to the readers in the first century. The claims that, that John is making in this se- section of Scripture are so profound. Because the Jewish nation, God's chosen people, have been waiting for this moment for centuries. They've been waiting for their Messiah. They've been waiting for their promised rescuer to come. And John is saying, this long-awaited moment, it's here. And here he is, Jesus Christ. John is calling them to consider Jesus, the preeminent, always existent God of the universe. And in today's text, we're going to see that in an even more profoundly significant way. We're going to see the redemptive work of Jesus. So we're fresh off the Christmas season where we celebrate Christ's birth. And unfortunately for a lot of us, myself included, when we celebrate Christmas year after year after year after year, sometimes the significance of Jesus being born wanes a little bit in our hearts, but can we all this morning just be reminded of what the birth of Jesus really means, what his coming to earth means for us, and can we just for a moment this morning sit in the wonder and the mystery of the fact that our God became a man to save sinners like us. Today we're going to look at the beauty of the incarnation, the birth of Christ, and what our response to this should be. Our text today places us at the manger of Bethlehem with the cross of Calvary in view. And so I want us to call I want to call us this morning to consider the great love of God to us his children as we look at this text together. So let's pray and we're going to we're going to dive in. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our need for you, Lord. Again, may we just sit and wonder, God, that you became a man to save us. Lord, that you did not leave us as we were, but condescended in love on our behalf to rescue us and to redeem a people for yourself. May we just behold this wondrous mystery. Lord, I pray that you would quiet distractions this morning. Lord, that we would sit humbly before this text. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you would pray for yourself. That the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, John 1, beginning in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this verse could warrant an hour-long sermon on its own, So, here we go. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm not going to do that to you. But, let's not fly by this very first statement. It says, and the Word became flesh. The Word, Jesus, the uncreated, ever and always existent Word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became flesh. Jesus Christ, God the Son, condescended to earth as a baby. And became one of us. God has become a man. And in contrast to the false teachings about the humanity of Jesus, we as believers need to hold this as truth. That Jesus Christ was born in the very same way, in the every way the same way, like us. He was a man. He was a person. Like all of us. He did not come, as some suggest, in the appearance of a man, but was actually a man. He took on bodily form and was born a person. He also, as some suggest, did not just inhabit a body. He was himself a real person. This is one of the mysteries of the faith, and the invitation to you this morning isn't to understand this fully, but to accept it by faith. Our great, eternal, God and Savior Jesus was born. He who has always existed put on flesh. And this is significant for us. This is is significant for us because if Jesus doesn't take on humanity for himself, he could not be our Messiah. He could not be our Savior. If Jesus is not fully God and fully man, then Jesus is not who he says he is. Jesus either has to be God or he is just a man. In the 11th century BC, we have this man. His name's Anselm of of Canterbury. And he said this, and I'm going to summarize, and I took this from uh, the book Know the Creeds and the Councils. Uh, Anselm said this, Since sin is a front against God... Then a payment from a human will not suffice. The satisfaction of the debt must come from God Himself. However, only humans are guilty of the penalty that's due sin. So, put simply, humans ought to, but only God can make right the wrong done. It's the person of Jesus who was fully God and fully man. And in the person of Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, this satisfaction was made, and our salvation is completely accomplished. If Jesus is not God, then he's a liar, and we're still hopeless. And if Jesus is not fully man, then he can't be our saviour. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And behold, I tell you a mystery. And since Jesus, in love, condescended to earth and put on flesh, he was able to do what we could not do. He was able to be tempted in every way that we are tempted. And in his temptation, he overcame the temptation to sin and did not sin. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. And because of his incarnation, we now have an advocate before God who has been tempted in every way that we are tempted, who can sympathize with us in our weakness. And though we succumb to this temptation, and though we wander into sin, even as Christians, Jesus Christ has overcome our sin. And because he has overcome our sin through his life and death and burial and resurrection, we too can have victory over sin. And we have victory over sin now. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our high priest before God. And through the Holy Spirit, Jesus' blood is interceding before God for us, pleading not your guilt, but your innocence your innocence that was purchased by Christ. Jesus' humanity also means that he could come and die in our place. I think if we stop at Jesus was born, if we stop at Jesus became a man, we will miss the whole point of why Jesus came. Jesus was born in the obscurity of Bethlehem, born in poverty, emptying himself of His riches and glory, so that through his poverty we may become rich. Jesus came to earth so that he could die in your place. Without his incarnation, there is no crucifixion. And without his crucifixion, there is no resurrection. And without the resurrection leading to the ascension of Jesus, we have no hope. We have no hope because we cannot save ourselves. We have been given a command to live in complete submission and obedience to Jesus, and we failed. We didn't want to follow Jesus. We didn't want to honor him with our lives. We needed a Savior, and in Jesus, we now have one. Jesus, who not only put on flesh, but he also, the text says, dwelt among us. This takes us all the way back to the Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament in the Bible, the second book of of the Bible where we read that God is redeeming a nation, of the nation of Israel. He's calling them out of slavery. He's rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, and he leads them into, into the promised land. God commanded Moses then to build a tabernacle. And this tabernacle is a foreshadowing of the temple where God would be worshipped and where sacrifices would be made for the pardon of the sins of the people. Mark Dever says that the Old Testament is promises given and the New Testament is promises received. So John says, God dwelt among us. Literally, it says, God pitched his tent among us. God has tabernacled with his people. Redberg says that the tabernacle was instituted by God as the place where he would dwell in the midst of the people, in the people of Israel. It was a tent that went before the children of Israel as they made their way to the promised land. Within the tabernacle was the most holy place where God came to meet man. Just as God came to meet man in the tabernacle, he came to meet man in the person of Jesus Christ. Worship for the Jews centered on the tabernacle and then the temple. But once Jesus came, he became the center of worship. Only through Jesus could man be brought to God. And the text says that we have seen his glory. This is also reminding us of the tabernacle. God's glory would be visible in a cloud that went with the Israelites as they traveled in the wilderness. And then it would settle on the tabernacle. And when the Jews would see this cloud, they were given a partial picture of the glory of God as a visible display of God's goodness to them. And it was a visible display of God's holiness, his excellence, his character, as the cloud was emanating from this tent When the word became a man and tabernacled among us, we have a full picture. We have a complete display of the glory of God in Jesus, seen in full. And this Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. We have a God who in his truthfulness has kept his promises to us to not leave us as we were, But in love and grace, the undeserved, the unmerited favor of God upon worthy sinners, in love and grace, Jesus has come to our rescue. God sent Jesus, and he has made his dwelling with us. Verse 15, John bore witness about him, and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Just as a quick aside, if you notice the parentheses in your Bibles are on the screen, don't be alarmed, but also don't skip past it either. The author, the Apostle John, has again interrupted the flow of the prologue. He also does this in verses 6 through 8. The parentheses in the ESV are added by the editors, and so not every translation has this, and I'm not sure if parentheses even existed in first century Greek language, Um, they exist for us to highlight again the ministry of John the Baptist as the witness. The prologue isn't about John, but he's a witness to Christ and therefore an example for Christians 2100 years later to follow. We're again reminded of John the Baptist who came to bear witness about Jesus. John is considered the last of the Old Testament prophets, meaning this. A prophet's role was to prepare the people, to prepare the people to point towards the coming Messiah. And since the Messiah has come in the person of Jesus, their office, the Old Testament prophets, their office and their prophecies concerning the Messiah have all been fulfilled in Jesus. And so the Old Testament prophet doesn't need to exist anymore. So John is existing as a finale to this office, so to speak. John has the advantage, though, of time and space that his Old Testament counterparts did not have. He could actually point to and touch physical, literal Jesus, Messiah, and say, Behold, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 16 says, For from him, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, we have received grace. And the double use of grace here means that there is an infinite amount of grace available to you. To summarize, Christian... You cannot outsend the loving and gracious reach of Jesus. And we're shown our need for grace through the law, the text says. Sometimes when I read, like the Psalms specifically, I see David, King David, thanking God for the law. And I'll be honest, I've never found myself praying before God, saying, God, thank you for Leviticus. But I should be thanking God for Leviticus. And here's why. Not only is it the word of God and therefore beneficial to me, but the law of God is a means of grace to us. Here's what I mean. God gives us the law. God gave the law in the Old Testament so that we can know how to relate to him, how he intends for us to follow him, how he has set apart a people for himself. In the Old Testament, God gives the law to the nation of Israel as a way to protect the people from their pagan neighbors. And they continue to live in disobedience to the law. The law exists to show us our sinfulness, which may seem harsh, right? Like, here's the law, you're pretty messed up. It seems harsh, but it actually is a mercy on us to show us our neediness. But the law can never save us. The law shows us our neediness and our need for a redeemer. And Jesus then comes and keeps the law, fulfills the law by obeying the law's commands for us. The law tells us what we deserve. And what we deserve is God's wrath against our sin. We deserve God's judgment, but what we have been given instead is God's love and God's grace and God's mercy demonstrated through the cross and resurrection of Jesus to forgive us of our sins. The law brings death, but it shows us our great need for a savior. The law points forward to Jesus who comes and fulfills the law through his life. We need the life of Jesus to satisfy the demands of the law on our behalf. And Jesus has done that. So we have been set free from the law to follow Christ, who has completed what we could not complete. In and through himself, Jesus has done it. We can rest that the work of obedience has been done for us in Jesus. Verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. With Christ, with Christ coming and dwelling among us, God has been revealed to us. God has been revealed to us real, present, tangibly in space and in time. Because Jesus has come, God's perfect plan of redemption has been fulfilled. Jesus fulfills the plan from the beginning to take our reproach upon himself. Jesus is God who is no longer dwelling in the heavenly realms, but has been revealed to us. And then he's ascended back into the heavenly realms. Jesus condescended to us in love, and now through the cross and resurrection of Jesus who purchased our pardon, we can have a relationship with God through Christ by the Spirit. The prologue of John, what we've looked at over the last three weeks, has shown us that God has kept his promises to us. That God is on a rescue mission and Jesus is our rescuer. Jesus has fulfilled every promise of God, and his grace and forgiveness are now available to you. God's grace, freely given, flow to us through the blood of Jesus. God sent his son to die for you. Don't miss the significance of this. Listen, maybe you're in here wrestling with unbelief. Maybe you're not even wrestling. Maybe you just don't believe in Christ. And I'd ask you to consider the reasons why. Christ came in love to offer you life. So are you struggling with the weight of shame and guilt, and fear, and doubt, and anxiety. Jesus is offering you himself, and this is a much better way. Jesus is offering you a way out from the sin that so easily entangles you. Christ is ready and willing to forgive you and is calling you to life in him. Scripture tells us it's by grace through faith that we're saved. Not good works, not morality, not anything other than faith and forgiveness given to us by Jesus. Do you believe that this morning? Christians, so many of us live with such a low view of ourselves that we're never, ever, really, ever willing to let ourselves off the hook for the things that we have done or the thoughts that we've thought or the fears that we have. On the other hand, some of us live with such a low view of sin that we never feel conviction. Conviction. Or we feel like our sin is not that big of a deal. And both of these views are incorrect. And here's why. Christian, God willingly went to the cross for you. Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross for you. Yes. Even you. Christ died as a criminal for your crimes. Why do you think he will ever, ever, ever withhold grace to you? He will never withhold his grace from you. His grace is sufficient for you, Christian. What would change in your life if you knew that you were loved beyond measure by a great God? Christ went to the cross for you. The God of the universe sees your sin, sees our sin, and it's offensive to him. And he would be just to have punished us eternally for it. And he was willing to die on our behalf. The response then isn't to minimize our sin. The response is not to minimize ourselves as image bearers. The response is, is not to blame shift your sin away. The response isn't to run away from the body of Christ and try to figure things out On your own. That's truth, bro. The response isn't to minimize the hard, but to magnify and worship our great God in Christ. Because Christ went to the cross for you, and he didn't stay there. He was buried and resurrected and has defeated sin and death on our behalf. Because of the cross of Jesus, Christian, you've been forgiven. Because of the forgiveness purchased on your your behalf, you... Maybe you need to look at me. Everybody look at me. Wake up. Wake up your neighbor. Because of the forgiveness purchased on your behalf, you are not a failure. Some of you need to hear that. You are not a failure. You are more than what you do. You are more than what you've done. Christ is pleased with you, Christian. The invitation is to repent. And believe that you have been given an identity as a son or a daughter because of the cross. Christ calls you a son. You have been adopted and that is the highest privilege that the gospel affords you. God is not angry with you, Christian. You've been forgiven. Our great God came and dwelt among us. He knows it because he's experienced it. In every way that we are tempted, Christ has been tempted and he has overcome. So God's not angry. He sympathizes with us and we have been forgiven. Will you rest in your forgiveness? Run to the cross. Cling to the Father through the Son who has come and dwelt among us. Let's pray.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information or to give to this ministry, please visit RedeemerChurchOdessa.org.